I've hit my quota. I hit the quota for the bell. Oh, wait. I had one more. All right. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, hour number two. Welcome, welcome. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Pete Callender here of the Pete Callender Show, coincidentally enough. If you want to email, it's Pete at the Pete Callender Show. Uh, you can also follow the podcast, so you'll get it every day free, right to your smartphone or tablet. Go to WBT.com, and then inside the little... Uh, audio player you'll see there on the drop down menu you got podcasts you can pull up all of the hosts and there's one uh there's a little icon in the top right corner it's very small somewhat difficult to find but i think it looks like a little round circle as opposed to the non-round circles but it's a circle and uh you click on that thing and it'll follow it and then it comes right to your smartphone and tablet for free every single day in three different podcasts okay so yesterday i started on but did not finish this New York Times editorial called America Has a Free Speech Problem. And I'm bringing it back. As I only got about a third of the way through, and there's a bunch of polling from this uh, or that they, they commissioned and then they talked about in their editorial that I find fascinating. I think you will, too. But it also connects to another story about a lesbian author who had a nomination for a queer publishing literary award. Her nomination was revoked because she told people to read a book. Not kidding. Not kidding. So we're going to get to that. It ties in also the Babylon Bee. Let me pull this up here before I even get to the uh, New York Times piece. Um, Kyle... Kalinsky, no relation. Kyle Kalinsky, his Twitter account is locked right now because he tweeted a GIF, and that is the correct pronunciation. It's GIF, not GIF. GIF. That's according to the person who invented them, and I'm going to go with him. Um, so the 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 head of uh, Babylon B, he's like the president, I think, or something. Anyway, he tweeted a GIF of a fake exploding head obviously in response to Twitter's rules that uh, blocked the Babylon Bee saying it was engaging in hateful speech or hateful behavior because it named Rachel Levine, the assistant uh, secretary for health and human services, who was transgender female. They said that they awarded Rachel Levine man of the year award. And so that was quote hateful it violated their terms of service. They blocked the Babylon B on Twitter. And Babylon B says, screw you. We're not taking it down. And uh, because Twitter said, well, we'll give you access to your account back if you delete the tweet. And they said, we're not deleting the tweet. And so now uh, I think that's when he started, Kyle Kalinsky started making comparisons about how uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini is allowed to be on Twitter and he's talking about genocide of the Jews. He's uh, uh, Twitter also allows uh, various uh, dictators and I think the Russian government and officials. They're still on there. So they're all allowed to be on there. They're allowed to spread misinformation, disinformation. They can actually literally call for the murdering of people and they get to keep their accounts up. But the Babylon Bee, a satirical website... They're blocked because they said Rachel Levine had won the Man of the Year award. Which, even if you're, you are of the opinion that 
she somehow changed her Rachel Levine changed her gender. Um, the 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 satire there is that they still named her Man of the Year. That's the satire. You get like that's the joke. It works. It doesn't just work as one way. It works the other way, which is kind. Of, no, never mind. Okay, so. They said, get this, Twitter says that the picture or the GIF, which is just like a moving picture, like a very short clip, you know, one or two seconds long, that the GIF violated their rules on gratuitous gore because it was a picture of a head exploding, which I've seen that meme. It's available on Twitter. It's literally a GIF that you can find on Twitter. And so he posted that because, oh, my God, head exploding. And now he had his account locked. America has a free speech problem. This is the New York Times editorial. They talk about um, cancel culture. They say Americans are losing hold of a fundamental right as citizens of a free country. The right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned. And I don't technically think I don't think that that's technically a right. I don't think you have a right to speak in public without fear of being shamed. Because I try to shame people like all the time. And I shun people more often than that. I mean, they don't know I'm shunning them, I think. But this has been evident for years, they said. In large part, it's because the political left and the right, because of course both sides, are caught in a destructive loop of condemnation and recrimination around cancel culture. Many on the left refuse to acknowledge that cancel culture exists at all believing that those who complain about it are just offering cover for bigots to peddle hate speech. Many on the right, for all their braying about cancel culture, have embraced an even more extreme version of censoriousness. See, so it's always, the left is doing some bad stuff, but, I mean, the right is way worse. Ironically, they then spend the rest of their seven-page editorial focusing on the, the way the left is engaging in this censorious behavior. Virtually all of the next seven pages. Because what the right is doing, which is way worse, which is um, as a bulwark against a rapidly changing society, they're enacting laws that would ban books, stifle teachers, and discourage open discussion in classrooms. See, so if you don't let that teacher talk to your kindergartner about gender identity, then that means you are a censor. You are censorious. You are just as bad as somebody who's lobbying to get people fired for being a Trump voter. You're worse, actually. That's what they, that's the New York Times position here. So later on, they say freedom of speech is the bedrock of democratic self-government. If people feel free to express their views in their communities, the democratic process can respond to and resolve competing ideas. Ideas that go unchallenged by opposing, it's like they listen to my show. This is what I say. Unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. It's only through the challenge. Resistance to pressure builds strength. It's only through the challenging of ideas, the testing of your idea. Right? Do you truly know your argument? You know its weaknesses. You know its strengths. But you are also better prepared to do battle. And, and look, if you're listening to this show, you're probably already in the battle which means you got to walk towards it, as Ben Shapiro says. you got to walk towards the fight. If you're going to get into it, you got to walk towards it. 
I don't I don't appreciate people pretending that they're not in the arena. This is why I get so ticked off with a lot of people in the press, in the media, because they want to pretend that they're not involved in the political arena. They want to pretend that they're just a wallflower, just observing, just taking notes, but they're not. They advance narratives. They're simple. Look, even in the most objective form, their mere presence at an event, merely asking an elected official a question for a story influences that story. So when they try to pretend that they are not influencing the, the story or the culture, you know that's the tell. That's a lie. Of course you're influencing things. Of course you are. You're not just there to take notes and, you know, be an observer of history. You are a participant. So if you're going to be a participant in the arena, you should know the, uh, the fight. You should know the arguments. You should know your beliefs, but you should also know your opponents. Because the point is to win the argument in the eyes of the people who are seeing you argue with your opponent. Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. It continues. The Times, New York Times, opinion slash Siena College poll, get this, finds 46% of respondents say they felt less free to talk about politics compared to a decade ago. Less free to talk about politics as compared to a decade ago. Do you find that to be true? I feel like, and maybe I'm not a good judge of this. I really am not. Because when people find out what I do or people already know what I do, they generally want to talk about current events and politics with me. And then they usually apologize at some point after bringing up a topic or their spouse will say, hey, 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 he doesn't want to talk about this. He's not at work, whatever. I don't mind talking about that stuff. And I understand that people have questions and most people don't follow the news Uh, like I do. They can't. I've said this for years. The only reason I am up to date as much as I can be on current events is because I literally spend all day reading news. It's all I do. Most people don't do that. Most people would not want to do that, I would suspect. And and I don't know why. There was a, what's his name? Uh, Jason Whitlock. Is that him? The the writer for the sports for, yeah. Um, I interviewed him a couple uh, years ago. And we were talking about social media and he equated it to fast food because he's on Twitter a lot. He does a lot of stuff on Twitter, but he was telling somebody else, get off Twitter. And I asked him, well, like, how do you, how do you justify that? Does that, aren't you kind of a hypocrite for telling, I think he was telling LeBron James to get off Twitter maybe. But um, I said, what about you? You're on Twitter a lot. And he said, he equated it to fast food. He said, he can't eat fast food because he loves it and he would eat it all the time, but it's no good for him and his body would reject it and he would get really, really fat. Um, and uh, for some people, that's like social media. But other people can eat fast food and they don't put on any weight. And for him, that's like him in social media. So he's good on it. He's fine with it to some extent. But uh, and, and I feel kind of the same way. I can unplug But it's just easier, honestly, not to for long periods of time, because by Sunday evening, like I've got to be back on 
because I got to get, I got to start prepping for the next day. It's constant. You're looking at the deadline. I've equated it to, um, have you ever been in like a school recital or a school play or something? And you know that the curtain goes up at seven o'clock on you know Saturday night or whatever it is. So that whole day, everything is just focused on making sure you're ready to go when the curtain rises at seven o'clock that night. And that's me every day. Curtain rises at noon, better be ready to go. So, uh, that's a long way of getting around this whole idea, uh, uh, getting to this point that most people do not have time to stay up to date on all of the current events because they're busy working jobs that actually matter instead of mine and uh, you know, providing for their family, taking care of their family, getting the kids to the practice, living their lives as they should, as you should. And if you can drop in for 20 minutes or so, listen to some stuff that we're covering today and you feel a little bit more informed That's all I hope to do. And if I can arm you with some information or some arguments so when politics does come up at the dinner table or at the family picnic, you're better armed for the battle. That's all. That's how I view my role here. Um, But 21% of people reported that they feel freer talking about politics now than they did a decade ago. So what was a decade ago? 2013? So this was in the... Well, 2012. Well, depending on how you count backwards, do you go to is zero the first year you start counting? Anyway, so 2020 or 2012. So this would have been Obama's reelection, right? Did you feel freer talking about politics when Obama was in office than now? I'm not so sure. I feel like a lot more people talk about politics now. I shouldn't say that. I feel like a lot more people demand an audience for them to talk about politics now. There isn't, I've noticed this, and I don't know if it happened with COVID because of COVID or if it just happened because people got out of practice in having conversations with other human beings that people just want an audience. They want to be able to say what they want to say and then walk away, literally, because that's how they've, and maybe this is a social media phenomenon too. And I realize, by the way, like I'm sitting here talking to a wall and doing this very thing. I do recognize that. But I'm a trained professional, people, okay? <laughs> okay, I'm not really trained. I'm just I'm just a professional. So I think a lot of people have gotten out of practice in having conversations, the give and take, allowing people to flesh out thoughts before responding and being able to string together a long and thoughtful response. I don't think that's how I know a lot of people don't talk like that anymore. Does that make me sound old? Kind of makes me, it feels like I make me sound old. Anyway, this editorial board plans to identify a wide range of threats to freedom of speech in the coming months and to offer possible solutions, says the New York Times editorial staff. Thank God. Oh, the New York Times, they're going to give us, they're going to give us solutions, everybody. We can rest easy. We can all count on them. And they're going to lend their leadership to this platoon. This editorial board plans to identify a wide range of threats. Oh, I can only imagine what that range is going to cover. How? M- yeah, I'm best. I- I'm betting there's going to be a ton of Republican threats that they're going to identify as even worse, as even worse than the cancel culture. But they do get into some cancel culture uh, data here. I'll get to that 
in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. There it is, Jeremy's Razors. Not a sponsor of the program. Oh, looks like they're having problems loading their website. The traffic must be overwhelming. That's fantastic. Um, so, no, not, not a sponsor. I'm just letting you know. The Daily Wire, they are launching Jeremy's Razors to compete with Harry's Razors. Harry's Razors was an advertiser of theirs that knew the Daily Wire's politics, knew the content that they created, knew the audience that they uh, sought to reach. And that's why they went over there to advertise with them. They wanted to sell razors to conservative people in the audience. And then somebody, apparently with two Twitter followers, literally, complained about something the Daily Wire did or said about transgenderism and Harry's razors not only pulled its advertising, but then attacked the company, the Daily Wire, trying to harm it, trying to get other businesses to stop advertising to the very people that the Daily Wire uh, uh, attracts and sold to Harry's, right? So they're like, we're tired of losing. We have to build a separate company to compete because we know it'll happen. What are you going to do, boycott Harry's razors? You just go back to them because you need razors. So now they're launching Jeremy's Razors, named after Jeremy Bory. So, and I went to the website, and it's it's just getting a spinning circle. So I because they just launched this thing like moments ago. Oh, there it is. I hate Harry's dot com. That's one. Um, yeah. So that's great because I have very little. Well, so I had a beard for a, for several years. So I had a lot of leftover razors. I think that mine came from like Dollar Shave Club or something. And uh, so I I wasn't using them a lot. I would just kind of trim up, you know, around the edges. But now I'm back to the goatee. So now I'm going through the razors at a little bit faster clip. And I'm looking at my dwindling supply. I've only got like one rack. Left. So count me in. I'll be going over there. Because this is what we are being forced to do. I don't like this idea of having a dual economic system. I don't like this idea. I want to be able to, you know, buy the best products and I want to be able to be on the platforms and talk with the people where everybody is. I would prefer that. But if we are going to be forced to create alternate parallel economies, then so be it. And it's going to make America worse off for it, by the way. But so be it. This is not, this is not, the uh, the situation that I prefer or chose. These are the terms of the fight that is being brought to me. So, okay, here's how we are going to have to play it. Back to the New York Times article on this very same topic. We are under no illusion that this is going to be easy. Their, their big project to identify a wide range of threats to freedom. No word if they're going to identify Jeremy's razors or anything, or Harry's razors, but... They say, our era is especially is not meant for this. Social media is awash in speech of the point scoring, picking apart, piling on, put down variety. 
A deluge of misinformation and disinformation online has heightened this tension. Making the Internet a more gracious place does not seem high on anyone's agenda, especially that works at the New York Times, and certainly not for most of the tech companies that control it. But the old, see, you catch a whiff of what they're putting out here? They want tech companies, this is why people, when they talk about repeal of Section 230, this is why I'm very nervous about, and most conservatives, you should be, you should be nervous about repealing it because the left wants the tech companies to do more censorship. And if they can get rid of Section 230 and rewrite it, they can make that happen. That's my concern. Not to say that reform isn't possible. I'm not an expert in the field. I did sit on a panel discussion a couple of weeks ago with people that were way smarter than me about it. And they, they went back and forth. And every time one of them spoke, I would agree with whoever spoke last because they both made really great arguments. There are pros and cons to it. But generally, as a limited government guy and as a more conservative-leaning person, but a lowercase l libertarian, I generally don't like rushing forward just because it's forward. I don't like jumping in and saying, we need a law about this emotional issue. Let's pass something right away. I don't like, that's not a good way to govern. You get bad law like that. So, all right, back to the the editorial. They say, making the internet a more gracious place doesn't seem high on anyone's agenda, and certainly not for most of the tech companies that control it. But the old lesson of think before you speak has given way to the new lesson of speak at your peril. You can't consider yourself a supporter of free speech and be policing and punishing speech more than protecting it. Free speech demands a greater willingness to engage with ideas we dislike and greater self-restraint in the face of words that challenge and even unsettle us. Hardest hit by this paragraph, New York Times staff. 55% of respondents in the New York Times poll said that they had held their tongue over the past year because they were concerned about retaliation or harsh criticism. 55% say they held their tongue. Women, more likely to report doing so, 61%, compared to 49% of men. Older respondents were less likely to have done so than other age groups, and Republicans were slightly more likely to have held their tongues than Democrats or independents. I know none of this is shocking, right? 22% of adults say they retaliated against somebody or were harshly critical of somebody over something he or she said. So one out of five. And get this, adults between the ages of 18 to 34 were far more likely to have engaged in that kind of aggressive behavior And liberals more likely to have done so than moderates or conservatives. So uh, apparently the the headline here is that the New York Times uh, has come around to accept a lot of the arguments asserted by talk radio. There you go. News Talk 1110-993-WBT-704. 570-1110. That's a phone number. and takes you right to the studio here. 1-800-WBT-1110. Also a phone number. Same destination. This is, who is this? Stan was his name? Hello, hey, Brent, Stan. Hello. Yes, welcome to the program. How are you? 
Oh, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. Um, yeah. I, have a, I want to say something here. Um, I am. Um, that's Pete Callender, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. I, no, I'm uh, Pete Callender. You're Stan. Yes, that's right. All right, um, okay. I called you Brett, sorry. Oh, that's but okay. Anyway, no, I um, uh, wanted to say that the, the reason for regulations is is they actually re- are used to regulate other competitors who would come into the market out of businesses, and they do that by giving the current companies certain tax breaks so that no other people can come into the market, and that way Facebook – Twitter, Google, they all keep their market share because that's what the government wants them to do. Yeah, it all same concept as all licensing laws uh, and organizations. They usually, it's sort of, uh, uh, it's a cartel-like kind of practice where they set up these permits and licensing requirements. Uh, then they get the government to adopt them for all people trying to get entry into the marketplace. And then it prevents the disruptors and the new people from entering the marketplace, thereby acting as a protection for the existing larger entities. Um, and yeah, we, we see it all the time uh, in all different sectors. And honestly, that's part of the problem with getting rid of Section 230. I think it's what you were talking about with the tech companies. Yeah. yeah, one of my one of my concerns is that if you make more regulations, which is what the Democrats want to do in replacing Section 230, then you're only going to empower the existing companies that have the army of lawyers to write those laws, but also to know how to keep other upstarts from entering the marketplace while protecting their turf. Right, yeah, and, and then the Republicans, will call, once in a while, they'll call these people up there on Capitol Hill and they'll grill them, but they're, they have no intention of shutting them down. Believe it, and actually what they're doing is they're saying, our voters would love to, for us to put you out of business and break you guys up. So that's their way of asking for more campaign contributions from those same companies next time so they can stay in power. Well, and the, another part of the problem is that the people who are, by and large, up on Capitol Hill have no idea the technology that they're even trying to regulate. They, have, they don't have any concept of some of this stuff. I don't, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I'm not trying to make the laws about it, and I recognize the limits of my very little knowledge on how the the stack works in the, the, the parlance of the, uh, of the tech world people, the stack and where, you know, what, what platforms are built upon what other systems and such. And so this, we saw this with, um, uh, parlor, right. Was it parlor that got taken down by Amazon web services, right? The backbone of the internet that's, that's up the stack. And if you can get at that, then you can, you, you don't even have to get at them on the platform level. You can go deeper into the stack and start shutting down businesses and running them out of business. And right. I don't think and, there are people and, up and, there and, that and, understand and, that. If the government was really is really interested in the free market letting it work, they would have definitely used their antitrust powers there. And if they're not going to use them there, then why even have them? Yeah, I, I, uh, because I think a lot of people don't understand how a lot of this stuff works. But And part of the other resistance and hesitancy is, as I've expressed, is that you don't know unintended consequences. You don't know how these, like, once you start repealing it, you don't know what's going to work and what's not, and you don't know what's going to get stuffed in there, and then whether it works as intended. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. And then you just have something worse than what you started with. Exactly. Yeah, so there's, and that's a conservative uh, posture in, in all things, right? That's that's one of the hallmarks, One of the, and thanks for the call, Stan, I appreciate it. It's one of the first principles of conservatism, which is recognition that, yes, Things change and you need to adapt and improve, but you don't rush towards 
the new all willy-nilly unprepared because that's that's a recipe for disaster. Let me jump over here. Who is this? Steve. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the program. How are you? Please let me tell you the number one reason we have all these excessive regulations. It's so that people have to make campaign contributions in order to influence uh, the, the, the regulations. Uh, I don't think that's the number one reason we have so many regulations. I think the number one reason we have so many regulations is because people get injured or harmed in some way. They sustain some damage in some form, and they then rush to either the media or a government official, usually both, uh, which usually ends up at the government official's office anyway, where they say, can't we have a law about this? And that's how it happens. And so they make their arguments that we need the regulation in order to protect people from fill in the blank. Well, that was the beginning of it, I think. But I, I think um, it's, it's grown to the point where uh, it's beyond that. And, and I have a little bit of experience. A friend of mine went to his congressman to complain about an onerous regulation. And the first thing he said was, well, you'll have to hold a fundraiser uh, for me. Hmm. Well, I, look, I don't doubt, especially in uh, entrenched older industries that have been heavily regulated, I have no doubt about what you're saying. I no doubt at all. Because once they're in, then it's in. I guess I was thinking more along the lines of new regulations. How do those things start up? But once, yeah, once the, yeah, I mean, once you create the, what is it, the the Board of Cosmetology in North Carolina, of course, then they're going to they're gonna keep working to find more ways to restrict access into the marketplace from competitors. They're going to and of course, all of it's going to be, you know, for safety or for, you know, to to protect the customers and such. But it also protects the existing businesses who then funnel the money to the lawmakers to keep the licensure requirements in place. Steve, I appreciate the call, buddy. Thanks so much. News is next.